0: Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman.
1: And I'm Eve Simmons.
0: And we're health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to.
1: This week we're asking how is it right that in 2023 women are still dying from a severe pregnancy sickness condition?
0: As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question about this or a suggestion for us, tweet us at MedMinefield. So listeners, you may you may have noticed uh, already that our sound quality is slightly different today. The, the Mail on Sunday and Daily Mail have, have moved offices and we're currently recording uh, the podcast this week. Um from uh i think it's where this? are we are we oh. in a kitchen what it's a kitchen, kitchen to slash be somewhere near that well room. actually appropriately just across the hall is uh, the uh the uh, nurse's office
1: oh that's good to know yeah i don't know where anything is it's very
0: fitting really that we're in here
1: absolutely anyway
0: so there's an echo that's why but we have more serious things to talk yes, about yes much week. more
1: serious things so to talk y-
0: about. you've been looking into uh reports over the last few weeks it was spurred by a local newspaper report that you saw on a young woman who had died with mm-hmm. a severe morning sickness condition. I, I think it's called Hyperemesis Gravidarum.
1: Yeah. I was pretty shocked to come across this story. I think it was it was in the Lancashire Telegraph originally. A 28-year-old woman called Jessica Cronshaw from Wigan had sadly died. And it seemed to be linked to this severe, extreme sickness condition that happens to some women in pregnancy.
0: Is this the one that... Kate Middleton. Kate Middleton
1: famously suffered so, and she from was in her first and third pregnancies yeah. I think. She was hospitalised uh, and we sort of think of it as severe morning sickness that passes after a few months that's you know you think oh how terrible for some women but actually you know reading into it this is a devastating disabling condition that can leave women literally bedbound for the entirety of their pregnancy there are treatments but uh, experts are saying that unfortunately due to a combination of things such as lack of awareness a sort of fetal centric attitude which means being very concerned about the health of the fetus as opposed to the health of the mother is denying women medication that may be helpful for them to to enable them to eat and keep food down and also not allowing them to have the medical support that they require
0: something else that you uncovered were reports dating back many years highlighting this problem that that women were going untreated with this condition due to myriad factors and you know, that this shouldn't be happening. So doctors have been warning about this, but the the situation is ongoing.
1: Absolutely. It seems to be more extreme in terms of deaths in the US. There's been a couple of the uh, world leading researchers on this topic that have really looked into the deaths. One of the big problems is that there doesn't seem to be Great data because some doctors aren't aware that it's even a condition, so it won't. Different medical conditions are coded as different things, so that researchers can keep track on them. But uh, this particular illness is often just put down as severe morning sickness, which doesn't have a coding, so lots of cases are missed. So we don't have great data on it, but there is some research that's going on at the moment that seems to be suggesting that a lot of cases are not treated as, as well as they should be, and. And unfortunately, some women are dying and there seems to be some sort of mystery around their death. But there's lots of scientists who say we know what the answer is. And it's that they had this condition. They were malnourished, basically. That's
0: something you said before, interestingly, this uh, fetal centric attitude in in medicine. I mean, this is something that perhaps... We also saw linked to the the various different hospital maternity scandals mm-hmm. recently, where where women were railroaded into having natural. I'm doing air mm-hmm. quotes here, natural births rather than being given you know more medicalized mm-hmm. labors, even if they really needed it mm-hmm. uh, to their detriment, because the idea that somehow it would you know be better for the baby, even if this was causing. Terrible injuries to the mother during labour. You know, again, you see the same thing with uh, breastfeeding. Yeah. If if women are struggling to breastfeed, having terrible pain, that they're not they're not managing at all. It's they're they're failing to do something. It's the right thing
1: for your baby. It's you the right thing for the baby. For you must baby. struggle on. Mm. And
0: when you know you could give formula, and it's absolutely fine too. Mm. I mean, what's what's that all about? Why why are pregnant women so kind of forgotten? Like they suddenly become a.
1: I think it's an an outdated attitude and I think that uh, the balance between fetal health and maternal health has always been a tricky one to get right. I think there's probably a lot of well this from what I have heard from pregnant women who I've spoken to throughout my various reports that there are lots of midwives and nurses perhaps working with pregnant women who are quite a bit, maybe graduated a long, long time ago, Have been working in the NHS for a long, a long time, and perhaps have Mm. some quite outdated ideas about, stick with it, put up with it, you know, shut up.
0: And so did midwives play a role in uh, hyperemesis condition?
1: I think they have quite a limited role with this condition because when it comes to treatment, it will be the, the antenatal periods, which is when a pregnant woman will have more contact with their GP. Because usually midwives only kind of come into it when you give birth and then in the weeks following birth.
0: Oh, right. Antenatal is before?
1: Yes, yes same as prenatal.
0: But I suppose on the flip side, you know, we're kind of saying there's fault with health services or maternity services. But having known many a pregnant woman, women are extremely cautious, mm. you know, to the point where almost I think every single woman I know who's, who's become pregnant has given up alcohol completely, immediately. Mm. And sushi. Sushi. And soft cheese and all sorts of things. I mean, you know, people I've are never very been cautious. Pregnant, but I don't
1: know if those are sacrifices that I'd be willing to make.
0: Gonna <laughs> say. But but you see what I mean that that we saw it with uh, you know the COVID jab most recently that mm. that women, I mean, you know, in full knowledge that they were almost sort of sacrificing themselves uh, because they could become so ill with COVID if they weren't vaccinated, they didn't want to take any kind of minute mm. risk that mm. the vaccine might harm the baby. It's a kind of mindset, isn't it? You do everything not to damage the baby. I
1: imagine that a part of that is quite natural. You know, of course, any expectant mother is who, who has a much-wanted-for mm. pregnancy wants to make sure that it, you know, is healthy and goes to full term. So I imagine that there is a lot of fear around something that, You might be in your control that you could not do to make a mistake, Mm. if that makes sense.
0: And interestingly, during the COVID pregnancy reports that we did, a few people brought up uh, thalidomide. Mm. Which was a morning sickness drug that was was almost experimental, I think, when it was initially given, and it turned out to cause horrendous birth defects. And I think that's stuck in it. I mean, it's been a medical scandal that's stuck in everyone's mind yeah, absolutely. In, in the public consciousness.
1: Every time uh, ever I do since. one of these pregnancy stories, whether it's about breastfeeding or cesarean sections or antidepressants in pregnancy, thalidomide comes up time and time again and seems to be the root of all concern. <laughs> (laughs) when it comes to pregnant women.
0: But it was a very specific Mm. issue with thalidomide not being properly researched Mm. prior to it being given to pregnant women, I think.
1: That's an ongoing problem, isn't it? That pregnant women are often excluded from medical trials. So there's a question mark about whether medicines are safe in pregnant women. I mean, you could argue there'd be no reason necessarily why they wouldn't be, but we just don't know is the answer.
0: Mm. Well, first of all, let's hear from someone this condition has affected.
1: Yes, on the line now is Jessica Kramer, who suffered hyperemesis gravidarum with her pregnancy. Jessica, you've had some experience of this awful condition. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what you went through and, and when it was that you suffered it?
2: Yeah, of course. So I was having my first baby in 2017. seventeen. I was recently married and um, I was a midwife so I was was so excited about having a baby and it was everything I ever wanted. So I felt pregnant and my only symptom actually at the start was that I felt fine. I didn't have my like usual you know pre-menstrual like sore breasts or moody or I thought this is great and then around six weeks I started feeling quite dizzy and I was like excited like oh this is you know the symptoms of pregnancy and I was not really thinking about, oh, I'll feel sick or be sick, but then about six weeks and four days, I do remember actually, it was like the summer of 2017, I I started to feel nausea mm. and I was like, oh, pregnancy, it didn't feel nice, so I was like, oh, it's pregnancy, but I was really quite alarmed that the nausea like never went, so it was like a switch being turned on that couldn't be turned off, so... It started mild, but it just progressed very quickly and being has been very, very severe nausea. Mm. And all I can relate it to is, and for other people to kind of understand, is the feeling if you're very, very hungover, you feel very dizzy, you feel very sick, you don't really want to move, you can't really talk, you're just waiting for it to pass. Or if you've had like a sickness bug and you're like in bed and you, you just feel like, you, again, you're waiting for it to pass, then the vomiting started this nausea just did not go like there was no let up till 20 weeks so I had months and months of constantly feeling like I had a sickness hangover mm. I was starting to vomit and then by eight weeks I was really vomiting a lot and even though as a midwife I was really slightly alarmed that this isn't normal this is not what I normally see mm. and I most women stopped they had breaks in the sickness it's common but they had breaks i've seen very rarely of, like women that was that sick but i also felt like fraud because my story is not that typical hyperemesis you're in hospital you're on drip i did have signs that i needed to go into hospital dehydration but i wasn't really taken very seriously and when can i just I- I ask when it. you
0: say you weren't taken seriously what made you feel like that
2: society health professionals and even some family friends colleagues I don't think they meant it I think it was they just didn't understand because pregnancy is sickness is so normalized that people are like oh I had that just get on with it and there'd be really unhelpful comments and health professionals didn't really have that understanding and I knew as a midwife who is an expert in pregnancy that I'd never had any training in hyperemesis apart from it being mentioned at, like, university. So my training myself on hyperemesis and sickness and pregnancy was learning off other midwives to say to women, have a bit of ginger, it'll go, maybe go to the GP and get some anti-sickness. And I'd never meant any harm from it, but I didn't have that knowledge about how severe it could be on mental health and on your life. And your Were impact. you given any
0: kind of treatment?
2: Yeah, I did have one understanding GP. I was given four different types of antiemetics, with side effects with it. They didn't really work. Like it, it maybe managed it that I wasn't becoming severely dehydrated, but I lost the stone but nothing got rid of the nausea and the nausea was the worst symptom. The vomiting was horrible. I would lay on the bathroom floor and like for relief and at the moment of vomiting I didn't feel sick because I was vomiting and I actually preferred that in a way than the nausea. The nausea is like, all I can describe it is I wanted to rip my throat, my esophagus out to get that feeling away, like, I just didn't want to survive another day feeling like that because I felt like it was slowly tortured. And I know that sounds dramatic, but that is how it feels. I felt like I didn't want to be alive because it feels like there's no escape from it. And the lack of understanding really, really is difficult. My turning point was when I took five days to pluck up the courage to ring pregnancy sickness apart, which I just stumbled on online, never knew about it as a midwife. And that first phone call to that charity, I felt understood. I was given good advice. I was given a peer supporter. And even though that, that didn't get rid of my hyperemesis, that was the turning point for me where I felt that everything was validated and that it wasn't my fault and that I was allowed to be off sick.
0: You know, obviously there's, there's a huge amount of misunderstanding about this in, in certain areas of medicine, but do you think that also that pregnant women feel reluctant to take treatments as well because they're worried that it might do them their baby some harm.
2: I was so worried about taking anything because you think, well, what if something happens because I've taken medication, but there's m- much more increasing research that some of the drugs are really safe in pregnancy, but we just need to get that information out there, which Pregnancy sickness part does on their website and their advice, but it's just health professionals knowing about where to access that advice for their own practice and health professionals to be able to reassure women that it is very safe to take this medication because i think sometimes health professionals will say oh we can't give you that because of this and they're not properly informed and then the women feel really bad but yeah definitely i think any
0: woman hears like small risk or tiny risk and they're just not prepared to take it at all so it's how those conversations are framed i suppose
2: it is because you're not prepared to take any risk but then It's not discussed properly with them, with a health professional, with that understanding, there's actually risk of having hyperemesis that's not controlled and managed, like suicide, like severe dehydration, like small for gestational age babies. There's there's lots of risks with that anyway. So like with other medical conditions that women have in pregnancy, they will take a lot of their medication with that, you know, risk-benefit conversation with their doctors. And they have similar risks, even more risks than some hyperemesis medications. But there's that cultural lack of understanding, societal issues with hyperemesis that you're sick, get on with it. You know, it's normal, pregnancy sickness is normal, but it's really not for this, you know, 1%.
1: Well, Jessica, thank you so much for sharing your experience. We're really grateful to have you on. That's okay. Thank you for having me
0: on. So I've just been having a look and it seems that the people don't even really understand why this condition mm, occurs, mm. that it's something to do with hormones. They think and it might be
1: genetic. It. There might be a gene oh. that programs for a certain hormone that makes it worse for some women.
0: Yeah, I guess that must mean that, you know, finding brilliant treatments that can really knock it on the head might be. A bit trickier.
1: Yeah, I've heard that although some of the stronger anti sickness drugs are usually effective, there are a significant minority of women for whom it just doesn't work at all. So, what choice do you have? You carry Mm. on with it and be incredibly sick.
0: Yeah, I mean, listening to the emotion Mm. of our last guest it really hammers home the point that it's not just morning sickness. It's not just bad morning sickness that that these women are are being hit by.
1: Absolutely. And if you think about, I mean, this is going to sound quite trite, but I was thinking about how horrible I feel when I'm a bit hungover for the entire day. And imagine having that every single day for months and months on end. And even worse, that you're actually vomiting. I, I can't imagine what that must feel like.
0: Well, next we've got someone who is a, a medical expert in this, in this condition.
1: Yes, and a campaigner too. Joining us now is Dr Caitlin Dean, who is the chair of the charity Pregnancy Sickness Support. Caitlin, you have spoken quite a lot about this topic. Why is it that you think that women are suffering so much with a condition that is so easily treatable?
3: Well, I think there's a number of factors that lead to the challenges that women face getting treatment for this. Historically, there's a bit of a stigma around the time that we were able to stop women from dying of it, i.e. when intravenous fluids were invented and modern antiemetics were invented. The death rate from it came down. But that coincided with the rise of the kind of psychogenic theories, sort of Freudianism and all that, So it became a thing that this must just be in women's heads. This was just that they were being neurotic or that they were mentally rejecting the fetus because they have a a bad marriage or a bad relationship with their mother or some nonsense like that. Now, all of that stuff has been thoroughly disproved. But unfortunately, there is still an ongoing stigma around that. And there are still people out there who believe that that's the case. Even healthcare professionals, you know, women can be faced with sort of questioning along those lines, do you actually want this baby and things like that?
0: I know when there was the Kate Middleton pregnancy in which she was hospitalised with hyperemesis, that it was termed severe morning sickness, but it's much more than that, isn't it?
3: It absolutely is. And that's that's the other reason why it it kind of gets stigmatised, because it's on a spectrum. And actually, to have a bit of regular pregnancy sickness or morning sickness, as it's commonly called, rather frustrating because it's rarely limited to the morning, that is a normal part of pregnancy. And in fact, most women who are trying to get pregnant, they actually look forward to that. It's, it's a rite of passage. It's a sign to them that the baby's normal and developing. And it is normal to have the odd wave of nausea, possibly a bit of vomiting early in pregnancy. And like I say, it can be welcome. A wave of nausea reminds you that you're pregnant. And you're you know most women are happy about that. But hyperemesis, you know, pregnancy sickness is on a spectrum, and at the extreme end of it, it is anything but normal. Like I said, it used to be the leading cause of death. It can be life-threatening. You know, it's so severe that the nausea takes over every cell of your body. You can't do anything without being completely consumed by the nausea, and the vomiting could be 30, 40 times a day or more. So mm. that's definitely not normal, and, mm. and not being able to eat and drink is not okay. There's also these kind of other old, wives' tailed notions like – Oh, but the baby's fine, it's so tiny, it's a little parasite, it takes what it needs from your reserve. Well, we know that's not true, actually. We know that malnutrition in early pregnancy can have lifelong consequences for the baby.
0: You said that some women have right now are being told that this horrible sickness condition is actually psychological, and they're they're rejecting pregnancy somehow.
3: Yeah, it doesn't in, in the UK, it doesn't happen that much anymore. I mean, my eldest is only 15 and certainly back at that point, you know, it was a pretty common thing to hear that, you know, are you sure you really want this pregnancy? You know, did you, did you intend to conceive it? That kind of line of questioning, you know, looking at the idea that you just don't want to be pregnant. Unfortunately, in a lot of Europe, that's still very much the case and certainly around the world. Yeah, and it does, it does occur in the country. I mean, we have a helpline that we take, you know, thousands of calls every year And a certain number of them are saying that their doctor sort of suggested that maybe it's all in their head and that they just, you know, aren't coping or, you know, start questioning them on their their home life, their relationship and that sort of thing.
1: You say that there, there are effective medications that can help a woman to eat. Is there a reason why these medications may not be offered?
3: Generally, through lack of awareness. I mean, you know, at the first, level you know gps are doing a fantastic job of being jack of all trades in our unbelievably overstretched health system and they simply can't know everything about everything and so historically there's been a lot of fear around use of any medication in pregnancy because of things like the thalidomide disaster which was sort of 60 years ago and has completely changed the face of medicine and medical research and and how they're all tested and all that kind of stuff that's all changed so why are we still Facing decisions on these kind of historic things. But at the same time, you can see why GPs can be nervous prescribing when they don't have the information about the safety to hand necessarily. The problem is that they, that information is very available to hand. I mean, you know, there's national guidelines very easily available online
1: do you think that it speaks to a kind of cultural nervousness around an unborn child well we, i mean we
0: saw that in, with covid didn't we i mean despite a lot of reassurance mm. you know i know women who were pregnant at the time and, and just did you know absolutely would not risk having the vaccine
1: and we've reported before on the problem of women not taking antidepressants when it's so vitally needed mm. it's to do with this kind of fetus centric society
3: where we all focus on the fetus but even that's misguided It's also about not really being able to understand the risk benefit balance to prescribe anything at any point in life. You've got to look at whether the benefits of prescribing and taking it outweigh the risks of not prescribing and taking it. And often, particularly in pregnancy, women are only presented with the sort of theoretical risks of taking it. But when you're presented also with the risk of not having, I mean, the COVID vaccine is a great example, because, you know, The risks of having it were sort of well, there aren't really any. Um, (laughs) So, you know, but theoretical risks are oh, what if it harms my baby? What if it does this? But if you then look at the actual risk of Mm. contracting COVID in pregnancy, which has a very high chance of harming your baby and yourself,
0: Uh, you know, if you really look
3: at those risks properly and Mm. are helped to do that, then the decision becomes easier, and there maybe needs to be
1: more focused on that. Are there cases when this happens early on in pregnancy where the woman may decide that she doesn't want to go ahead with it?
3: Uh, Yeah, I mean, termination for hyperemesis is fairly common. And it's often women express that it was either me or the baby or both of us. Mm. So I figured if I terminate the baby, I can at least survive and look after my other children or whatever else. Termination for this is is very common and a lot of very wanted, loved, tried for babies are lost to the condition and that is incredibly traumatic for women.
0: So what needs to happen in your opinion?
3: I think greater awareness and education. A lot of junior doctors have never been taught anything about the condition by the time they leave medical school. Even midwives often have only had maybe a 20 minute or a half an hour session on this and in some universities that's still along the lines of but there's nothing safe to take. Education is a key thing. Public awareness to appreciate what really is the case and you know you mentioned the duchess of cambridge earlier and you know it it was fantastic that we got so much awareness from her unfortunately suffering you know a miserable condition that i would not wish on anyone ever but the reality is there was a flip side to that and there was this i overheard people suggesting that it was just fashionable now Um, and bear in mind that the average british woman her experience is going to be extremely different to that of someone who has private healthcare, private doctors staff to cater for your other children your husband you know you're not she wasn't going to lose her job mm. our women who phone the helpline you know their jobs are on the line how are they going to pay the bills if they're off sick for months on end if they lose their job how are they going to look after their other children they can't afford childcare. you know or they've got all of that going on mm. and they have a battle to even get treatment mm,
1: absolutely well uh, dr caitlin dean thank you so much for joining us today thank you
0: I'll go back to something that I mentioned earlier on. If you bring up the idea of even a tiny, tiny risk with a woman mm. who's pregnant, it sets off this huge, very natural alarm bell. Yeah, And it's a similar kind of thing with the situation with breastfeeding versus bottle mm. feeding, that, that even if women are very much struggling to breastfeed, they're trying to force themselves not to bottle feed because, I mean, it's it's almost like this very theoretical risk that somehow babies might be less intelligent is, if uh, they're they're bottle fed. Uh, I mean, what is... Obese what is, uh,
1: as well, apparently. But, um, I mean,
0: this is based on just about nothing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I find it really interesting because we don't look at risk in relation to ourselves in that way. We're able to take on a small amount of risk, actually quite a significant risk if we think there's going to be a benefit when it comes to our own health. But pregnant women and, and babies, it's a whole different story, which I guess you can understand. But it proves that these conversations need to be handled very delicately by health professionals.
0: Mm. And I suppose ultimately it also chimes with the conversation around termination of pregnancy.
1: Mm.
0: I mean, there are still people who think that somehow women shouldn't be allowed to do it.
1: I think it's interesting how this kind of umbrella issue comes up time and time again in different ways. You know, we've seen in the last year, we've reported on this in terms of breastfeeding and then... Concerns about antidepressants in pregnancy and cesarean sections. And now we're on this, it seems like it's a kind of never ending cycle of berating pregnant women for trying to look after their own health.
0: Well, I really hope you keep on reporting on these issues. I plan to. That is all we've got time for. If you want to read all about this and all the latest health news, you can do so in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday, which you can consume in good old-fashioned newspaper format on mailbus.co.uk and on the Mail app.
1: We'll be back with another topic on Medical Mindfield next week. See you then.
0: Goodbye.